You are listening to sermon audio from Grace Community Church of Gresham, Oregon. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net. We've been working through, this is actually our third sermon in the Daniel series, uh, chapter two. It's, I am regretting terribly having proposed this book. It's hard. It's such a challenging book. It gets at so many different things, and oh my gosh. So, love it, hate it. I don't hate it. It just, ah, it's just so challenging, because it, even though it was written a long time ago, it speaks to stuff today. It's just astonishing. So when I think of Daniel, let's see, on, there we go. When I think of Daniel, I'm thinking here of an empire. Uh, the Babylonian Empire, well, it's just, it was an amazing thing. And put it in context, the Assyrian Empire was, was the dominant empire in that whole region for 300 years, three centuries. And starting about six 15 BC, there began to become rebellions, and one of those rebellious towns was the city of Babylon. And Egypt and Assyria and worked together in ally to try to hold Babylon down because they were the young Turks. And there was a running battle that went on for about three years that finished up in 605 BC, the Battle of Carchemish, where Nebuchadnezzar beat the Egyptian king, Pharaoh Necho, and the last of the remaining Assyrian people. And in that change, everything happened. The Assyrian Empire that had been there for 300 years disappeared. The brand new Babylonian Empire came in, and Nebuchadnezzar, who was the crown prince and the general of the army, incredibly gifted, powerful man, became the unquestioned emperor of this new realm. And when we look at that, that's the story we find in Daniel 1 through 4. And so here's a picture of the Babylonian Empire. And what this map does, the reason I like this particular one, is it puts some of the contemporary names on top of the ancient empire. So see, uh, uh, the Persian Empire, which was next door, of course, is contemporary Iran. Contemporary Babylon, what's the name of the thing? It's Iraq. Does that sound familiar? The names have changed, but the players have really not. And you've got Egypt down there, you've got Israel, Turkey. This is a picture of Babylon. It went from being just a nice city to being an incredible, incredible city. Just this artist rendition, you see the temple in Marduk in the back, the big, big temple, the palace of, Mar- of the king there, and the Ishtar Gate right here, which if you happen to be in Berlin, you can see it. It's been reconstructed in the museum there in Berlin, and you can get a picture of how big that thing is as you look at the people in the gate. And over on the side, see that? That is a striding lion, and that is the personal uh, animal totem of Marduk Ed Nebuchadnezzar. And yesterday, I was standing in front of one of those striding lions that Daniel would have walked by in the time of that time. This is in the Oriental Museum in Chicago. And Daniel walked by this lion and the one on the other side of this hall every day as he came and went from the palace. And this is how real this whole thing is. The Hanging Gardens of Babylon, one of the seven ancient wonders of the world, and many would say the prima- premier ancient wonder right there in Babylon. 
just, I mean, these are artists' reconstructions. We don't know what it looked like. It was just incredibly beautiful. Art, culture, power, everything there under Nebuchadnezzar. Meanwhile, back in Israel, Judah has been defeated in 597 B.C. Daniel's already in Babylon. But it didn't stop there. In 586, Jerusalem is destroyed. The city of God is completely wiped out. The temple of Solomon is demolished, burned, and razed. In a real sense, Yahweh has been defeated by Marduk, at least in the interpretation of the people of that world. Because it wasn't just people battling, it was God's battling. And here the people of Jerusalem and Judea have been exported, exiled to Babylon, 586 B.C., a time of incredible, incredible loss. And again, that's Daniel 1 through 4. Nebuchadnezzar died. It was a long reign, uh, 40 years. And his successor, actually a dual king, Nabonidus and Belshazzar, that's Daniel 5. And at the end of Belshazzar's reign, this is what happened. The Persians came after Babylon and destroyed it. So the entire time of the Babylon Empire was only from 605 to 539, about 60 years, and they were done. Now Babylon continues as a city, but the empire was destroyed, completely destroyed. In the book of Daniel that we look at, it has a, as a way of telling this story that is so artistic and so incredible. Chapter 2, which we'll look at today, the king's dream of four empires leading to the kingdom of God. Daniel 3, that's the three men in the fiery furnace. They're persecuted but remain faithful. They're exalted. Daniel chapter 4, the king's pride is humbled by encounter with God. He ends up worshiping God, and because he does, he is exalted. Chapter 5, Belshazzar, another king, the second king, his pride is confronted by God. He resists and he is murdered. Daniel ends up in the lion's den under Darius, the Persian king. He remains faithful, and he is exalted. And in chapter 7, Daniel's dream of the four kingdoms leading to the kingdom of God. See the, the symmetry of the story? Incredible symmetry. And then we have the visions that are the interpretations of what's happening and what's going to happen in the future, this book that we look at together. When you look at the passage... In the second year of his reign, Nebuchadnezzar had dreams. Now, these are not dreams like I had last night. These are nightmares. Second year of his reign. Now, he's new at, a, being, a, he's new at being emperor, but he's not new at being in charge. He's been the crown prince. He is unquestioned emperor, but he has troubled, couldn't sleep. So he summoned the guys to tell him what he had dreamed. They came in and said, sure, tell us a dream, like... It, you know, it, it's troubling, but we can deal with that. So you've got the grandeur, you've got the glamour, but you've also got fear and helplessness and brutality. You see a horror of the dreamer. Even though he is the unquestioned empire of the entire world, he is having nightmares. And his power is characterized by a paranoia as well that shows up in his nightmares. He calls the men and says, okay, they say, well, okay, now this is what you say to an empire. Oh, king, live forever. <laughs> Otherwise, you won't. 
tell your servants the dream and we'll interpret it. I mean, we're the best in the world. You've hired us. And Nebuchadnezzar says, okay, this is what I've firmly decided. If you don't tell me what dream was and interpret it, I'll have you cut into pieces and your house is turned into piles of rubble. Tell me the dream or you'll become body parts. Now, what would you think if you heard that? You'd think, ay, ay, ay. Now it's not the horror of the dreamer, it's the horror from the dreamer, and it's aimed at these astrologers, these wise men, these advisors, these... And they said, Sir, there's no one on earth who can tell to what the king asks. No king, however great and mighty, has ever asked such a thing of his magicians and chanters astrologers. What the king asks is too difficult. No one can reveal it. No one can reveal it to the king except the gods. And they don't live among humans. You see the helplessness of magicians. This incredibly, unquestionably powerful king has put on them an impossible burden and their lives and the lives of their families are on the line. And they're helpless. What can they do? They correctly say, no one can reveal it except the gods. Only gods can know dreams. I mean, they're, they're completely internal, completely private. Tell us the dream, sir, and we'll interpret it for you. Not a chance, the king says. And they remember, gods don't live among humans. What they're saying here, correctly, is we are not gods. You have given a task that only the gods can do to people who are not gods, king. And they don't even ask for mercy because there's no, there's no use in it. This is the king, totally ruthless. He's been conquering the entire world. And he says, tell me the dream. And their response made the king so angry and furiously ordered the execution of all the wise men of Babylon. Now, who's one of those wise men? His name is Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, Abednego. So the decree was issued to put the wise men to death, and men were sent to look for Daniel and his friends to put them to death. Now, Daniel hadn't been in the palace. He wasn't anywhere near. He didn't even know what was going on. And what do we hear to Daniel's response to hearing his death penalty? Now, this is political brutality of the worst level. We hear a lot about brutality and overreaction and those kinds of things these days. This is a whole different level. Daniel had absolutely nothing to do with what was going on, yet his life has been put on the line. What's his response to getting the news that you're a dead man? Is it this? Did he go out in the streets with cardboard signs and start screaming about abuse? Power to the people? Something like that? No? 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 That's a popular response, but not Daniel's response. When Ariok, the commander of the king's guard, had gone out to put to death the wise men of Babylon, Daniel spoke to him, went directly to him, talked to him with wisdom and tact. He asked the king's officer, why did the king issue such a harsh decree? He didn't accept it. Then Ariok explained the matter to Daniel. So you see what happens is Daniel is responding not with anger, not with helplessness, but with hope with hope. And he comes at a man who understands who he is, what his place is, how he is 
a son of the Lord Most High. And he goes and he asks for what's going on. And he speaks to him with wisdom and tact. As you saw in Sean's message last week, he had already proved himself to be a man of excellence and competence and respect and submission. And he was acting out in that way with wisdom and tact. So what he does in his response is there is a wise, tactful inquiry. I think Daniel's picture of how he responds to this is a, is a picture for all of us when we feel that we have been misunderstood, when we feel that we have been attacked, when we feel that we have been abused, we feel that our political party has lost, our champion has been decimated, responding with hope, with wisdom, with tact, out of a base of excellence, is the way to go. How many have seen the movie Hidden Figures, just out of curiosity? Oh my gosh, I've got an assignment for you. Go see that movie. It is incredible, incredible movie. Story of three women working for NASA. Brilliant, brilliant women, black women, who because it was the 1960s were made to be at best second-class citizens. Abused and attacked, and instead of responding with anger, with violence, or withdrawal, they engaged, and all three of the women are portrayed in the movie as fervent Christian women. It's a movie to be seen. Because they knew what Daniel had done. So he goes to Arioch, the king, or the king's servant. And then Daniel went in to the king. Now how come that Daniel could get in a hearing with the king? Because he already proved himself to be a wise and good servant. So he goes to Nebuchadnezzar. Again, wise, tactful, hopeful. When he turned to his house and explained the matter, his friends Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, that's their Hebrew names, he urged them to plead for mercy from the God of heaven. Now, who's he pleading for mercy from? Not from Nebuchadnezzar. That would be hopeless. He's pleading for mercy from the God of heaven. Please, Lord, show us what's going on. Show us what you're going to do, as he inquires of Yahweh. During that night, Daniel gets the word, a vision. And he's told what the dream is and what his interpretation is. His response is to praise Yahweh. We're not told a lot of details that I'm really interested in. What we're told is his response. And we've got a great poem here in Daniel 2, starting at verse uh, It's to verse 20, I think. Praise be to the name of God forever and ever. Wisdom and power are his. He changes times and seasons. He deposes kings and raises up others. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to the discerning. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what lies in darkness and light dwells with him. I thank and praise you, God of my ancestors. You've given me wisdom and power. You've made known to me what we ask of you. You have made known to us the dream of the king. A beautiful poem of praise to the God who cares and the God who is with, the God whom he has hope in. Now he goes to Arioch again, the one who's appointed to execute the wise men of Babylon, including Daniel. He says, don't excise the wise men of Babylon. Now he's not only concerned for himself, he's concerned for all these astrologers 
and diviners who don't worship Yahweh in any sense. We're going to find out later they're aligned against, da- against Daniel. He still cares about them. Don't execute any of them. Take me to the king. I will interpret his dream. So he goes back to the king, except he's in a very different position now. The king asks Daniel, Belshazzar is his Babylonian name, Daniel, God is my king, God is my judge, Belshazzar, Marduk is my judge. Which one do you think Daniel liked to be called by? Are you able to tell me what I saw in my dream and interpret? Daniel replied, no wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no diviner can explain to the king the mystery he was asked about, but... There is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries. He has shown King Nebuchadnezzar what will happen in the days to come. Daniel refuses honor to himself. He gives honor to the source, to Yahweh, the God. Remember, Marduk defeated Yahweh? Mm-mm, mm-mm, mm-mm. Yeah, Marduk's people have destroyed, or will destroy, the people of Judah and Jerusalem. But God is alive and working and powerful. There is a God in heaven who is with us. And he can do things that the diviners and the magicians of Marduk can't do. He can reveal the king's dream. So he gives the interpretation. We won't go through all of it. This is a dream. Now we know how to interpret it. The king, your majesty, you are king of kings. The God of heaven has given you dominion and power and might and glory. This guy is good guy or bad guy? Nebuchadnezzar, good guy or bad guy? Depends on what team you're on. If you're on the Babylonian team, he's like the best. If you're on anybody else's team, evil guy. Which team is Daniel on? Is he on... Nebuchadnezzar's team? He is. As a servant of the king. He isn't as a servant of the king's God. That's the tension that he's living under. But see, instead of bad-mouthing the king who has just said, you're going to die, to Daniel, he is responding with wisdom and tact and incredible level of respect. Incredible level. You are king of kings? That's the title that's used for Yahweh in the Bible. He is among humans the king of kings. He's the most powerful king around ever. In your hands he has placed all mankind in the beasts of the field and the birds of the sky. That sounds like Genesis chapter 1, doesn't it? That sounds like image of God, except he's not, as we'll see particularly in chapter 4. Wherever they live, he has made you ruler over them all. You are the head of gold for this statue. So this is one interpretation of the statue. This one we're told about. Daniel interprets the head as the kingdom of Babylon, and particularly Nebuchadnezzar. But he didn't tell us what any of the rest of the kingdoms are. Now, there have been various attempts. One of the ancient ones, the Jewish one, is the silver is the Medes. The brass is the Persians, and the Babylonians and the Medes were conflicting with each other. The Persians are the one that destroyed Babylon. The iron is the Greek kingdom under Alexander the Great. 
and then the rest of the kingdoms. So that would have focused then, and we'll unpack this further when we talk about chapter 7, when we come back to a different picture of this same dream, this same revelation. That would say that the Antiochus Epiphanes is the abomination of desolation. Another interpretation, popular, Babylon, we know that one. Silver is the Medo-Persian Empire, because the Medes and the Persians came together to destroy Babylon. The brass is Greek, Alexander the Great that conquered the entire world, including the Persian Empire. The iron is the Roman, but of course that would have had to require prophetic insight from David, or from Daniel. I have no problem with Daniel having prophetic insight at all. I mean, he could interpret a dream that he hadn't even told. And then after that would come the Roman Empire, depending on, you can date its end at 476, <clears throat> when Rome was sacked, or you can do a date in 1453 when the uh, end of the new Roman Empire. But anyway, it goes up into the present for the rest of time. Another way to look at this. Head of gold is Babylon. Again, we know that. It's just a picture. The picture that we get in our world is that human institutions are progressing, getting better and better as evolution proceeds. And what Daniel's vision represents is that's not true. That's not true. In fact, all human institutions fall apart no matter how powerful. So it goes from gold to clay to divided toes. All human institutions fall apart except Messiah and his kingdom. And that's the one we look for. So the picture here is the vision of Daniel is not about specific kingdoms, but the way human institutions go. Much debate about that. But the thing that's the focus of Daniel's kingdom is the destroying rock, Messiah's kingdom. In this kingdom, he explains, while you were watching, a rock was cut out, but not by human hands. It struck the statue on his feet of iron and clay and smashed them. But the rock that struck the statue became a huge mountain, filled the whole earth. He comes back in his explanation and says it this way. In the time of those kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, nor will it be left to another people. It can't be destroyed. It will not be transferred to the kingdom it's given to. And it will crush all those kingdoms and bring to an end, but itself will endure forever. This is the meaning of the vision of the rock coming out of the mountain, not by human hands, a rock that broke the iron, the bronze, and the clay, and the silver, and the gold to pieces. Now the question is, what is that kingdom? We know it's Messiah. When? When is that happening? This is the kingdom of the unhewn stone. It's just a rock that's been bashed out of a mountain. There's no carving involved. There's no statue built. There's no paint on it. It's just a rock that's been taken out of a mountain without any human involvement of any kind. It strikes the statue and crushes the kingdom. What is that kingdom-crushing rock? It struck the statue in the feet, not made of human hands. It became a huge mountain and filled the whole earth. What is that kingdom? What is that kingdom? I think that kingdom is here now. 
I think that kingdom came, began. Can you guess when I think it came? A guy named what? Jesus. Uh Is he crushing kingdoms? Is he crushing kingdoms? Sure doesn't look like it. See, I think there's, I think Daniel may have perceived, certainly it's hinted at in his vision, is this kingdom will come and then it will become a huge mountain. I think he's talking here about a kingdom that comes in what we call inauguration, beginning. It's already, but not yet. And I think the kingdom is already here in its unending, powerful kingdom right now. What's the nature of that power? See, when we think of power, we tend to think of military might. ICBMs and nuclear warheads, perhaps coming out of North Korea, and we must respond in kind. We think of economic power. Who controls the oil market? Who controls the rare metals that fuel our cell phones? Who controls Walmart? (laughs) And what I'm suggesting to you is that is not the real power. Human institutions, including all of those things, fail. God's kingdom does not. And that kingdom, summarized by Jesus, says, love God. What does that mean? Genesis 12, be loyal to Yahweh even when you're in the land of Baal. Be loyal to Yahweh even when you're in the realm of Marduk, Daniel. Genesis 15, God says you're going to have a baby out of your own loins to your 80-year-old wife and Abraham says, okay, I don't get how an 80-year-old woman's going to have a baby, but I'll trust you. That kind of trust is what we talk about when we love God. It means we're loyal to him, even when it may get us killed, and we believe him, even when it makes no sense. And then he said, love and serve your neighbor. That's Genesis 18. Keep the way of Yahweh by doing righteousness and justice, or in the New Testament. Well, you take that particular phrase, love the Lord, love your neighbor as yourself, is quoted from Leviticus 19. Go back and look at the context of Leviticus 19, and it tells you what love your neighbor means. It doesn't, mean, it doesn't say feel good about him. It says do justice to your neighbor. And you see it in Mark 10:45, Romans 12, and so many other places, but that's not the end of it. Because Jesus added something else to that. He says, love your enemy. Love your enemy. Love your neighbor. I can see that. He says, love your enemy. That really makes no sense. What if your enemy is named Nebuchadnezzar? And what if your enemy says you're going to die and he's got more than enough power to pull that off? What do you do? You love your enemy. How did Daniel love his enemy? By asking God to reveal the dream and the interpretation of the dream and serving his enemy with excellence and respect and wisdom and tact and undercutting his fearsome evil power that was going to kill Daniel and all his friends. That's the kingdom that Jesus represents in this phase.
1 Peter 3, we just looked at just recently in our serving series, talks about the same thing. Even if you should suffer for what's right, he says, don't fear their threats. Look, all they can do is kill you, torture you, a few details like that. But read in your hearts, rever Christ is the Lord, be loyal to him. And that last phrase, do it with gentleness and respect even when it's an enemy. We are to be known for gentleness and respect. We're to be known for all of those things. We're to be known for people who are loyal to Yahweh. We're to be known as people who love and serve neighbor and enemy. We're to be known for people of gentleness and respect. Now to be sure, we don't give in to evil. Like Daniel, we go against the evil. It's how we do it. Now, there's certainly a place for police force and military and those things. I'm not talking about that. I'm talking about how we as a church, how we as the people of God do that. And we're known for loving God, loving and serving neighbor and enemy, for responding with gentleness and respect, no matter how evil things are. Daniel. The king said to Daniel, Surely your God is the God of gods and Lord of kings and the revealer of mysteries, for you're able to reveal this mystery. Worship? Well, yes, but not with relationship. Because what's the very next thing he's going to do? He's going to build an image of himself and say, Everybody's got to worship that. He is not a follower of Yahweh yet, but he's respecting Yahweh. How come? He knows a guy named Daniel. I'm going to get the worship team back up here as we finish up here and think about how should we live. And one of the ways you should live is to recognize that human nations fail and fall. Always. No matter how powerful, three centuries of the Assyrian Empire dropped. Sixty years of unmatched grandeur, Babylon fell. Persian Empire, incredibly beautiful, fell. Put in whatever you want. Human nations fail and fall. What, and the question is, what do I do when I lose control? What do I do when, and I'm a control freak. No, I'm not a control freak. I'm just very careful. What do you do when you can't maintain control anymore? What leaks out when the stress is overwhelming? Daniel lives the Abrahamic promise. Bless all peoples of the earth, and we should as well. What made the difference? What made the difference? There is a God in heaven who reveals mystery. In the preaching team this week, Jay was telling us a story of how he ended up coming here. Thank you for coming. Tell us how God got you here, Jay. It's quite a story, like Daniel. So I always preface this uh, that God doesn't always speak to me like this, um, but when he does, I'm very grateful. So my mom had texted me. Uh, she said, Jay, did you know Grace is hiring? And it was just, it was out of the blue, uh, random text. And uh, if, you, if you know me, I, you know, I live in, in Troutdale. I've been commuting to Beaverton for 12 years. And so I just, I texted back, no, mom, had no, no idea. And then I couldn't shake the feeling just thinking about it, thinking about it. Next day, uh, woke up, first thing in my mind, that text. 
I didn't know much about grace or, or really um, anything at that point, but suddenly uh, I, I, on a whim, I picked up the phone and I called the, the office and the nice gal at the front said, hey, I know you. She knew my mom and um, we talked and then I left a message on Pastor Jay Messenger's voicemail and I, I hung up the phone and I was praying, I was ironing a shirt and I said, God, what am I doing? Like, what's this, what's going on? I, I love my job. Um, why, why did I just call? And that's kind of the, the, the prayer I threw up. And in my spirit, I felt like God said in that moment, hey, if this is of me, if this is something I'm doing, you're not going to have to make another phone call. Just watch. And it was, it was that clear. Um, no James Earl Jones, but it was clear, <laughs> clear in my spirit. And about 60 seconds later, my cell phone rang, and it was my friend Bonnie Knopf, who uh, her, the first words out of her mouth was, Jay, uh, did you know that Grace Community Church is hiring? And I said, well, yeah, sort of. <laughs> um, and, and from that moment on, the rest of the phone call, it was almost like pushing play on a, on a phone call that I had received from another gal that God had used in my life when I uh, took the call to sunset. It was almost the same message. And I hung up there just going, all right, God, like, okay, you know, what's, what's next? Uh, and from there, it was just actually even more, but that's a story for another day, just um, signs that God said, yeah, this is what I have for you next. I affirm God speaking to you. <laughs> Thank you for listening to Sermon Audio from Grace Community Church. For more information about service times and ways to connect, visit us online at gracecc.net.